Welcome everybody to the Good Data Podcast. I've been looking forward to this episode for a while. Sean Patrick Terrio will be our guest. Sean is a consultant, professional trainer, analyst, and sales professional within the data center industry. He's the CEO of Open Spectrum, which is a data center consultation firm that provides training and resources to help demystify this industry and create standards for selling and brokering honest and transparent deals. They've negotiated and closed hundreds of data center and hosting contracts with service providers around the world. Sean's also the VP of the Cloud Elements Division of Microcorp, a master agency for telecom and cloud services. Sean wrote the Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, which gives a fantastic overview of the colocation industry from the perspective of what channel partners and brokers actually need to know about the industry. You can get that on Amazon. Lastly, he's the host of the I Love Data Centers podcast, which is a great resource for anybody interested in where the industry is going. So without further ado, let's go. John, welcome to the show. I really appreciate you coming on. Well, I appreciate you having me, man. Looking forward to that. Well, I know you're very busy. You've got your company that does many different things, including training that you just got back from, from Louisville, Kentucky. And I, I know that's a lot of traveling, so it's great that you made the time. So just to start off right off the bat, you are the founder and CEO of Open Spectrum, right? So what is Open Spectrum and uh, what do you do there? Yeah, so... Um, we do, we're, we're data center marketplace consultants. And what that means is we focus on understanding the nuance, the players, the actors, the deals, the deal types, all within that, that ecosystem. And when we say data center, it's kind of like the word cloud these days and that it means lots of different things to lots of different people. And whether you're talking to someone from the telecommunications industry or one of the hardware bars, uh, or someone who's actually working for a data center provider or hosting company, we all kind of define what a data center is a little bit differently. Uh, even, you know, directors of IT working for corporations will say that the closet that they have a couple racks of servers um, sitting in as a data center. Um, so when we say data center, we kind of, we mean all of it. Uh, so we mean the, the ecosystem of uh, enterprise companies that have those server closets. Uh, we mean the large hyperscaler, wholesale, purpose-built data centers that you know, Google and Amazon and, and whatnot have built uh, over the last few decades and that the big financial firms originally started building and whatnot. Uh, and then we also mean the colocation industry where you have the retail and, and wholesale uh, providers such as Equinix and Digital Realty Trust and QTS and CoreSight and whatnot who are delivering you know, data centers as a service. And then including those who will come in and, and operate and build and manage a, a corporate data center on-prem for a company as well. So there's a wide swath of, of service providers and services uh, and actors and players. Uh, and you have all the infrastructure that is inside of those facilities as well. So the telecommunications equipment, the hardware, the power, the electrical equipment, the cooling equipment and whatnot. So there's just a huge gambit of 
of actors and products and services. And it's our job to know all of them and really stay on top of what's going on in that place. So with that as the core nucleus of, of what we do is staying on top of that information and the transactions that occur in that space. We use that knowledge to help buyers. So enterprise companies that are looking for new homes for their data uh, make smarter decisions. So we help them find homes. We help whether it's a hosted environment or a owned environment, or uh, we help them negotiate contracts. And because we've negotiated literally hundreds of these contracts over the last few years alone and toured through hundreds of these facilities, you know, me personally, I've toured well over 400 facilities in the United States in the last five years. So we have relevant experience that very, very few people in the world have uh, because not everyone needs to go out and buy this infrastructure on a regular basis outside of the Googles and the Apples and the uh, IBMs and whatnot. So we use that intelligence to help the enterprise customers. We use that intelligence to help the service providers, leveraging the training, which you mentioned. So wrote wrote a book on the industry called the Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook. On its fourth edition, we're about to be launching the fifth edition of that book. You can find it on Amazon and you can also find it on our website, openspectrumink.com. I have educated and trained thousands of industry professionals over the years. And then we also work with the, the money capital in the industry. It's clearly, we can leverage that intelligence that we have to help them make smarter decisions. Are you ever involved in sort of the right-sizing process so that companies or providers choose the exact right scale that they need to build to? It's something that I've seen over and over again that, that data centers were overbuilt and built to a larger scale than was necessary. So is that part of your process um, or is that sort of a different part of the market than you assess? When you say, so who are we talking about, uh, an enterprise customer or a data center provider? Well, actually, uh, let's start with enterprise because I think that's the the biggest pain point for them. You know, they're not always as data center savvy. So if we can start talking about enterprise, that helps. Yeah. So those conversations we have on a regular basis because uh, as companies are either pulling data out of the cloud and putting it back on prem, which is actually happening in mass these days, uh, or at least we're, we're seeing that happen a lot with customers or they're trying to migrate services or they're buying new equipment and they're trying to right size, you know, from a space perspective, it's fairly simple because they know or they have an idea about what hardware they're going to buy. The hard part is right sizing the power. And it's still the case today that well over uh, 60, 70% of customers are leveraging less than 40% of their contracted usable power. Uh, so there's a lot of, let's just say the contracts that are being signed are not aligned with actual need from the customer. Right. And that's primarily due to customers not fully understanding the plate ratings and the power, the power ratings for the equipment that they're installing or just doing due diligence on uh, how much power draw is coming out of the equipment that they already have installed that they may be moving. So they'll assume that because a certain size circuit, like a let's say they've got a 30 amp 208 volt circuit is currently in the cabinet in their office, if they're gonna move to a co-location environment, they'll just say, well, we'll just get the equivalent of that. But if they looked at the actual power load of the hardware that's on that circuit, they might see that they're only using you know, one or two KW out of that 5kW usable of that circuit. And instead of right-sizing the circuit when they do the migration, they'll just buy whatever they had in the past. So 
you know, it kind of goes to the whole DevOps mentality where you have people who are not trained in, you know, electrical, uh, electricity, you know, they're not electrical engineers and someone hasn't really walked them through the components of right-sizing that type of an environment from an electricity perspective, which, you know, most engineers pick it up really quickly, but, you know, they have to go get themselves educated on it before they can make the right decisions. So we spend a lot of our time educating customers on that fact because we want to make sure that they're not overpaying for services. (laughs) So there's kind of a, you know, we kind of have a jokingly love-hate relationship with a lot of our service providers uh, and especially the sales reps that work for them because they prefer the customer uh, paid for much more power than they actually were going to use right. because they get paid, you know, commissions on it and, or, you know, the company gets the revenue off of it. Right. And what's interesting is the facilities, the facilities engineers within those providers are actually wanting the customers to right size their environment because if they have, if they built the data center to two megawatts, they want two megawatts to be used. <laughs> they don't want, you know, a half, a half megawatt of capacity and critical load used when they've built it out to, to a two megawatt capacity. Right. So there's an interesting game and conversation that gets played there from many different angles. Yeah, it also becomes a reliability issue. If you have that 30 amp 208 circuit and you overload it more than 80%, there's a possibility that you know when the A side fails, which has 45%, then it'll all go to the B side and suddenly you'll, you'll pop that breaker. And that's something that I think a lot of it happens. You know, I, I think the best COLA providers actually monitor that with branch circuit monitoring and, and will add them up and make sure that you don't go over. But they don't necessarily tell you what your load is before that point. So it would be great if COLA providers would always just tell you what your load is on any given circuit. But that's not something I generally see happen. But yeah, you're right. that 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 is something that is just a misalignment between the ops people or, or uh, the different teams, the, the actual server people often don't talk to the operations or, or facilities people. So it generally seems, though, that the server admins or, or just basically the IT admins are the ones who drive the process. Is that, is that what you find as well? Yeah, it really is. And it's even the VARs who are selling the hardware to these enterprises don't even fully understand what the power draw is going to be on those devices. Right. So they'll look at whatever the manufacturer recommendation is. And let's say it's 500 watts for a, you know, whatever it is, a a 2U chassis, which is a pretty, it's a lot of power to draw from a single 2U chassis, but let's just say it's 500 watts. The reality is that would be 500 watts if that server was fully spec'd out. So max CPU, max, storage, max RAM, and it's running 24-7, 365. Right, at, at top so speed, yeah. The, exactly. And if the applications on that device are really only going to be running from a 9 to 5 perspective when customers are actually or, or, you know, out in the marketplace and or employees or in the office pulling data off of it or whatever it might be, uh, then it's really less than half the day that that server is really going to be running full throttle. And if it doesn't have the full CPU, RAM, and storage, then it's going to be even less. So that 500 watts uh, that's recommended by the manufacturer is really going to end up being something like 100 watts or 150 watts when it all is said and done. So having that conversation and educating the bars is just as important as educating the customers uh, because they're out selling the stuff. Right. Um, but the conflict comes in just the, the pricing models 
for a lot of providers who charge on a circuit-based model. So let's say they sell you a 30-amp, 2-8-volt circuit. You pay for that entire circuit and all the power that's delivered through that circuit, whether you're using it it or not, right? Right. So it's not a consumption-based model, which means that if they're only using 2KW of that 5KW, the margin that that, pro- that service provider who sold that circuit is making on that circuit is extremely high. And so it's, it's important to understand that dynamic and where the incentives are or not <laughs> in this case. So the provider is not incentivized to educate their customer on the reality that they're using a fraction of the power that they're paying for because the margins that they're making on those customers that are not optimized is so high. This is a good time to bring up uh, another piece of something that you do. A lot of this stuff is very well covered in the industry playbook, data center collocation book that you wrote, that as you said, is on the fourth edition. And it goes into some pretty good depth into circuiting, size of circuits, uh, the billing models for different collocation customers. And uh, one of my favorite parts is is you, I, I had always thought of uh, KVA and KW in terms of like power factor and, you know, some of that complex stuff. And you just have a picture of beer and the KW is the beer and the, the difference to the, the KVAR is, you know, the, the foam on top. And I was like, all right, that's easy to explain. You don't have to get into <laughs> waveforms and things like that. So <laughs> it's a good book. I really, I appreciated it. Yeah. I think an analogy like that, you know, to be blunt, man, I, you know, I was an econ poli side double major in college. I was not an OMS major or, you know, anything to do with technology. You know, I, I'm, I'm a geek and I've been playing around with tech since I was a kid and I've been around it for a long time. You know, I was blessed to have a, a dad that was uh, largely responsible for converting many of the um, trading exchanges uh, in Chicago and in New York and all over the country uh, from, you know, a, a very manual paper-based process into a digital process. So he was always bringing home the uh, the new IBM chassis and whatnot, uh, and let me play around with them, and I would break them. <laughs> yeah. And then he would uh, introduce me to the IT people in the office, and he was lugging these things back and forth between downtown Chicago and where we lived down in the suburbs. And eventually, he just put me in touch with the IT people uh, so that I could talk to them directly. And I'd, I'd have to teach him how to use these things. So, um, so yeah. So it's it's a it's an industry that is highly technical. And so I've had to put much of what I've learned into an analogy so that I could understand it. Right. And so a lot of the book is me just trying to make this stuff digestible for those who are coming into it, into the industry from, from out of the industry. It is a complicated industry and it's getting more complicated every day. And uh, it's, you know, like you were saying earlier, there's this push and pull with on-prem and collocation and quote-unquote cloud, uh, which <laughs> is a ridiculous uh, nomenclature. Uh, you know, what is cloud? It doesn't. That particular thing doesn't have any meaning because uh, it can go from Azure, which is a, a essentially a, a platform upon which you can put regular servers, and then there's also uh, Lambda, which is just hey, here's code that you run in space, and you don't have to worry about. Uh, where it is, and they call it serverless, and none of it makes any sense. So um, how do you deal with customers who are trying to 
speak to you about something like, oh, well, well, we went too far cloud. How do we bring back into our uh, on-prem? Like, how do you break through all the mud of what they're actually asking you for in terms of what is cloud? Um, well, that kind of just speaks to what I just did a couple of days ago. So we just hosted our very first uh, hosting and cloud uh, boot camp in Louisville, Kentucky. And we had about 25, 30 folks there, uh, providers and partners that we work with. And we had eight, eight service providers. So QTS, CenturyLink, Evolve IP, Rackspace, uh, Flexential, TierPoint, and Office Depot, CompuCom Office Depot. So all companies that deliver quote-unquote cloud services or some flavor of hosting or hosted infrastructure. And they also deliver some form of, or, or, or they deliver some form of IT as a service. Right. So propeller heads and geeks who have industry expertise on certain platforms that you can on demand you know, bring in to assist uh, to manage your network or your systems. So it was two days worth of just education. So we first spoke and when I'm talking to clients, we do very similar stuff. We just talk about the industry at large, you know, what, what, who, who the players are, uh, what their motivations are, how it's evolved over time. And then we break it down into the specific products and services that are being sold. Cloud is really just someone else's computer. You know, it's just hosting. It's just a flavor of hosting. It's a lot easier for people to understand what it is uh, and the utility that it serves. So, you know, we're, we're big proponents of companies moving into a hosted environment. Uh, you know, the, the concept of a, a healthcare company or a school system having, you know, dozens and or even just, a, you know, more than maybe one or two IT people on staff that have certifications and Microsoft or Oracle or whatever it might be, for me is just ridiculous because it's not their core competency. They should stick to their core competency of providing healthcare services or education and receive uh, IT services as a utility, just as they do power. Um, you know, they're not going to go build a power plant outside of their office and run a power plant to deliver the power that they need on their university campus or their their hospitals, they buy that from a utility provider. And it's the same thing with compute resources today. So walking customers through that dynamic and that reality uh, that this market is evolving drastically, very, very quickly, and that for them internally to stay on top of everything is going to be an impossibility. So let the utility provider, the IT utility provider uh, who focuses on that, let them focus on it. Let them continue to retain and hire the tech talent and become specialists and experts in that area. Will they retain the top education and top health talent, um, you know, doctors and whatnot, healthcare professionals? So that's that's what we do is we try to break it down into you know digestible conversations like that, and then the the types of services and really business outcomes that are trying to be achieved. You know, do they do they need to stay up 24/7, 365? Um, you know, how many employees do they have? Who needs to be speaking with who? At what hours of the day are they doing business? You know, we're trying to have business conversations with them and have IT simply serve a utility to help them achieve those business outcomes. It definitely seems like the change that's happening in the market. And I, it makes me wonder, 
I, I know a number of people who are enterprise data center experts or or they're, they're working in the IT enterprise space. And I'm just wondering, are those people likely to have a job in 10 years? It seems like more and more on-prem is, is moving off-prem. And I support that. I think it's actually pretty intelligent, but there are, are still some things that stay on-prem. So first of all, do, do you think <laughs> those people need to find new jobs? Well, not, not all of them, right? I just think that the job well, two things. A lot of those who are like super adept at, let's say, like uh, a, a CCIE Cisco engineer, right, um, or you know, Microsoft certified, or AWS certified, or whatever it might be, those folks are always going to have a job. It may not be working for a small, medium enterprise or even a large enterprise. It may be working with the likes of any one of the hosting companies that I just mentioned who were at at our event. So they may get the job now working for QTS or one of the IT utility providers. Um, if they truly have the chops to stay on top of the technology and add that value for a customer, they should be able to add that same value for multiple customers. So I don't think that they're going to, you know, those who are on top of the technology are going to be out of a job. It just may be a different per employer that they're working with. Uh, and then the, as it relates to internally within a corporation, I think the director of IT uh, and the CTO and CIO roles are evolving to become far more strategic in nature. And again, trying to figure out and answer that question that, that I pose, which is how do we leverage IT to help support and deliver the business outcomes that we're trying to achieve? Um, and not so much dealing with the day-to-day -day fires that occur from basic just IT management, right? So break fix, tier one support, tier two support, um, you know, managing physical servers, uh, that's not going to be the job of a director of IT or any underlings underneath the director of IT. That's going to be the job of the IT service provider. Yeah. I, I find also that that's, uh, not only is it better for the company, they don't have to get outside their core competency. Not only does the uh, IT service provider generally handle IT tasks better, it seems like as software moves more into a managed IT model, uh, it actually gets more efficient that data centers that were purpose-built for that model tend to have the all the proper bells and whistles for efficiency. And I'd, I'd like to parlay that into a talk about efficiency. And first of all, do you agree with that, that, that in general, uh, almost as a green initiative, going with a managed IT solution is probably going to help your quote-unquote carbon footprint if you were to take all things into account. Yeah, I mean, by simply working with a firm, I mean, ideally with a firm who knows what the hell they're doing, right? <laughs> and can yeah. and can right-size your workloads and the applications that you have to the environment that you're moving into. It, it's no different than what we were just talking about from servers and, and how much power is being consumed, right? You're not going to stand up a server that has, you know, six cores and, um, you know, 20, 20 gigs of RAM um, and two terabytes of storage for a teeny tiny application that needs a fraction of that, right? But that definitely happens. Um, <laughs> I've seen it happen. Yeah. So that same efficiency is happening, though, within these, these hosted environments. And to your point about software, there's a lot of tools that are available today. Uh, that pro service providers give for free to their customers 
that will help map uh, application needs to the right size workload to support that application uh, so that they can be as optimized uh, and uh, yeah, as, as optimized as possible. Well, and also uh, it, it just comparing for, from my own experience, comparing colocation to a on-premise enterprise data center that's 30 years old, uh, almost, almost to a one, the colocation is, is actually a better uh, built data center in terms of the general carbon footprint. That's not 100% true. Uh, and there are actually some, I, I actually take that back because there are some companies that really do a great job of air containment and uh, and keeping efficient running servers, getting hot air back to the crack units. But um, do you see that the, the colo industry is really getting its uh, ducks in a row in terms of green initiatives and efficiency? Some are and some are not. So those companies that I think are uh, on top of it have initiatives internally and incentives in the right places. So when they're incentivizing their facilities manager to reduce the uh, their PUE, right, the power utilization efficiency, so how much uh, power is required to deliver usable work, usable load to the floor for servers to actually spin, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, for, for listeners here, just to put this into uh, something tangible, if you have, uh, let's say, two kilowatts of power coming from the utility into the data center, how much of that two kilowatts is actually going to make it to the server that's on, on the data center floor? If there's only one kilowatt that's available on for, for that server on the data center floor, that would be the equivalent um, of a, what is it, a, a two PUE. Right. So a two is really, really high. That means you have a very inefficient data center. Whereas if you had a 1.2 or 1.1 um, PUE of a data center, which a lot of the new newer data centers that are leveraging a lot of the optimized cooling um, technologies and newer power distribution systems, which are far more efficient in how they uh, clean and deliver power through through uh, from the utility down to the server room floor. Um, that means that there's only of that uh, 2kW, a 1.1 PUE would be about 200 watts. Um, would it be 200? Yeah, would be 200 watts. That would be basically waste. Um, you know, that's just lost between the power coming into the data center and reaching the data center floor. So that means of that 2kW, 1.8kW is actually being used by the servers, which means it's very efficient. Um, and if it's efficient, that also means that they, they can bill the customer for that power that's delivered to the floor. Because um, they don't bill at where the, the power comes in from the utility. They bill at where it's consumed inside the cabinet. So providers are incentivized to be as efficient as possible. They're incentivizing their facilities managers to do something as simple as putting in, you know, blanking panels on the, in their cabinets for the, the U or the, the space in that cabinet that is not being used, which prevents air from flowing and forces the air through the servers that need that cold air, right? 
Um, that alone has drastically reduced PUE in every single data center that that's been deployed in. So those efficiencies uh, are are a priority for some, but not all. Um, you know, I remember three years ago, I was walking through a facility that was just built, brand new facility that was built in Secaucus. And I was asking the facilities manager who's giving me the tour what the PUE was of the facility. And he was like, I, it's, it's about a 1.6. We've designed it to build uh, to about a 1.6 PUE. And I was, I just stopped dead in my tracks. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, this is a brand new, brand new facility. You know, the one right across the street that was built by your competitor was built to a 1.2, 1.3. And the response was, well, you know, we really uh, just have a carbon copy of a data center that we build out everywhere we go. Um, you know, our focus really isn't on the efficiency of the, the data center because we're primarily a managed hosting company. And, you know, we really just focus on the managed hosting piece. And I was just like, that doesn't make any sense at right. all because all you're doing is saying you're going to build a data center that's going to cost you more to run than your competition. Right. So if your competition across the street starts delivering the same services as you, they're going to have a lower cost basis. And so their, their margins are going to be better. Um, you're not going to be able to compete. And so anyway, so those are the types of, of rationale and reasoning as to why the industry is starting to build more and more efficient data centers. But to you know, my point there, I still see companies and general contracting firms um, designing, building, and delivering to customers data centers that make no sense to me. Well, one of the biggest difficulties there is, is again, kind of right-sizing. If you have a chill water system that is sized for the entire size of the data center and you're running it first day, you're going to have a three or four PUE because the just the pumps themselves are going to take so much energy to run. And then as you fill it up, you're going to get better and better in terms of your PUE. So it's funny that that design, quote unquote, 1.6, that is probably only the day, you know, 500 PUE. It, it's not going to be that way until... It, it goes and goes and goes. So the best co-location tends to have something more like outside air that they can use convection and utilize the actual airflow that's endemic to just hot air rising. And some of those do exist and they're great, but it's complicated. I'm sure you know. <laughs> it is It is a very complicated mess to engineer something that will be efficient day one and still efficient day 500. Data centers take, uh, it was the number 2% of global energy. Now it's closer to three or, or three plus percent. So I want to incentivize people to uh, get the most green footprint as possible. But how much do you see actual enterprise customers going into co-location? Do they care about that? Or is it really just a bottom line issue? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and at the end of the day, it's really just a bottom line issue. They, they're going to look at the, the total contract value. They're going to look at their total monthly recurring. They're going to look at the, the cost to the business and decide accordingly. So I have seen a handful of companies that care about green, quote unquote green and efficient data centers. But, you know, there's no, no such thing as a green data center. Right. Um, so they are building some... Um, you know, uh, zero, zero, what do they call it? Uh, I forget the terminology, but, you know, zero impact yeah. uh, data centers in, in Europe, right? 
right. uh, and primarily the Netherlands and Denmark and um, Sweden and, and whatnot, where they have a lot that uh, they have countries that have for decades now been focused on delivering renewable energy. But, you know, here in the U.S., we have not had anywhere near as large of a focus and not provided the types of incentives that they have. So do customers care? Some care, very few care. What they really care about is the bottom line. And if they, you know, some care only to the extent that they can leverage leverage it from a PR and a marketing perspective. So if they have a lower cost and there happens to be a lower cost due to the renewable energy that's coming into the building and they can spin that as a, you know, pat us on the back because we're taking care of the environment, then, you know, then they'll care. But it's not something that's the vast majority of customers are out in the market looking for, quote unquote, you know, green green data center services. Right. Well, I, you know, I, I actually, you know, every once in a while I'll tap somebody and just be like, is is this going to happen? Are we going to, to help this industry? You know, I don't know if you watch Silicon Valley, but uh, the first episode or one of the episodes, every single company that's discussing their product is like, this will change the world or, you know, that we are here to make the world better. and it it doesn't feel as though data centers have quite caught on that bandwagon. Now that's sanctimonious and, and it's silly, but you know, it would be nice if there was more of a focus on that. Uh, just in, in my, you know, opinion. Yeah. I, I, that. That was, I think it was one of the first episodes of yeah. Silicon Valley where they had, yeah, they had the, the guy up on stage. I remember that, that scene vividly. It's, um, yeah, we're it's so true. And, with our, you know, yeah. our teeny tiny little app. You know, that, right. That, that we're, that, you, know. Um, you know, if you look at the marketing, though, that comes out of someone like an Equinix, um, you know, with what they do globally, um, you know, they're, they've always invested a ton of money on marketing, which is part, you know, in part why they're, they have the success that they have and the mindshare that they have, but there's very few companies that even can remotely come close to doing what Equinix is doing on a global scale. Right. Um, and so their pitch really is that they, they interconnect the world and that they connect to everyone everywhere. And through that, they facilitate, you know, uh, the brave new digital world that we live in today. Um, so they are a company actually that, that does tout, you know, and I would say rightfully so that they are facilitating, you know, this, uh, you know, a transformation that's occurring around the world. Right. I mean, you see, you see an Equinix facility and they are, first of all, they're beautiful, but also they have a unique uh, airflow system. A lot of times they have uh, a mezzanine above that uh, so that the hot air goes as high as possible and gets collected back into the air conditioning units, which makes them run more efficiently. And um, yeah, they, they, they really pioneered that a long time ago. And um, yeah, Frank Ferugia is, is somebody I know. And he was one of the people who just decided, uh, hey, he works for Equinix. And he just made that decision to put it on the plenum one day. And I think it's uh, it's done well for them over the years. <laughs> it's important to know, though, with someone like Equinix, and almost not almost, not all, but almost all, they all grow through acquisitions. Yeah. And, you know, the real estate investment trust at the end of the day. So if they find a property that has a clientele that's stable, um, they're going to want to acquire it because they're going to want to have that property in their portfolio. So the the majority of the Equinix data centers I've toured through are not, have not been built in recent years, right? That's There's true. Been yeah. Internet exchanges that have been around since the 90s. And those, those data centers are not very efficient. 
know, they're not running at 1.1, 1.2 PE. That's true. Uh, they're running at much, much higher. They may have co- uh, clients who have contracted for services uh, where their, uh, you know, the the uh, power, the wholesale power uplift that they pay every month is pegged to a 1.3 or 1.4 PUE. It doesn't mean that the actual PUE for that building is anywhere near that. Um, and you just have to know, you know, asking when the data center was built and who it was built by is, you know, for me, an important question that I ask because it helps me understand the efficiencies uh, of that building. Yeah, well, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, Equinix has a very specific business model of being an internet exchange. And so in some ways, it's how many carriers are in the facility is is almost the most important piece. And they are they have been very good at, at keeping that market. And uh, I, I wonder, do you see much disruption in that particular market, the internet exchange market right now? Short answer to that is yes. And it's for many, many, many different reasons. But that's that's where networking and interconnection is becoming a very much a, a software-defined process. So if you have all these networks connecting into one platform, uh, which is really what the peering exchanges have, have been for a long, long time, um, that allows you to, from a single portal, log in and have instant visibility to every carrier that's available and with a few clicks, create virtual VPNs or, or just virtual ports into those carriers. So with one cross-connect into one of these exchanges or ports into one of these exchanges, you now have access to every carrier. Uh, and not just every carrier, but all the other customers that are also inside that exchange. And so that's where that's become a very attractive product and service through the likes of Megaport and Packet Fabric um, and the Equinix Cloud IX, uh, and there's a handful of others that are that are popping out there, and you even have the large peering exchange providers such as Ekix um, and Amsix and whatnot that are, are creating um, disruption in that space. Uh, CenturyLink and Zeo are building out their own exchanges as well. So once you connect into the, the CenturyLink exchange, you now have access to not just CenturyLink, but all the carriers that they have access to inside their, their facilities. So it's making it such that, you know, having a physical presence uh, and having your data live and reside inside one of these major hubs and these internet exchanges is no longer a necessity. You may need to have, you know, a core router or switch inside the building um, but your data doesn't have to live there. It can live across the street in a big server farm where the cost of being there is a fraction of what it might be in the IX. Right. Um, so there is a lot of discussion going on in that space on, on a variety of different levels. Yeah, Megaport, uh, you know, just the ability to uh, connect into something like uh, AWS or Azure and and make things feel like they're on one network. The, the ability to create through SD-WAN and things like that to make your environment in some ways, even though it's in different places, it, it simplifies things. And I like the idea of simplicity, personally. <laughs> Anytime that something can feel more simple is is generally positive. But it, it also might be a security issue that, that if you don't have to have points of presence in all these different pops around the world or, or internet exchanges, you don't have to worry about, you know, 
connecting them all and, and monitoring them all as an enterprise. So, you know, the the security world is changing as well. And, you know, the, there's the physical security of, let's say, a big COBA provider, which many of them do a, a fantastic job on security. Some of them don't. <laughs> is that is that kind of one of your checklist items? You you the first thing you see when you walk in the door is usually security guard or a you know a, somebody who's at reception, but often it's their security presence. Is that one of the uh, touring points that you take in when you're looking at a colo data center? Yes, for <laughs> for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, and you know it's like table stakes, right? If you, if you don't have very certain things in uh, in place, you know. At very least, what it's going to do is just create doubt and uncertainty for any customer that's looking to deploy their own infrastructure in that building, right? Right. Um, so that you know, there's the optics around it, right, are very important. And so companies may go completely overboard, such as, for example, the the, the switch facility in Las Vegas. I right. You've ever been through that one? <laughs> I haven't, but um, I, I know. Kind of like, yeah. Yeah. It, I've been a few times, and it's literally like a it's like a Las Vegas show that they put on for for customers when they're touring, um, and they even bring you into a theater, <laughs> a, a theater that they built inside the data center to like show you, um, you know, videos on on what they have going on, and they've got armed security guards walking around, um, and they've got a massive wall around the whole place and a big gate, and you know the theatrics of it are very high. You know, the reality is, you know, Drew, how are people going to hack into an environment? Are they going to drive a Mack truck through right. a wall and come out guns blazing to rip hardware out? Or are they going to do it through the network? And it's, you know, I literally only once heard of an incident where someone literally came in with guns uh, and chainsaws uh, because they had a chainsaw through the walls. And, and stole a bunch of NetApp uh, storage devices. And it was in Chicago like seven or eight years ago. That's the only time I've ever heard of someone truly breaking into a data center to steal hardware. Right. Um, and steal data. But every other time it's been through the net. So if you have basic security measures in place, that's going to deter, you know, almost every single person from physically coming in there to, to take your gear the most important piece is going to be the data security from a network perspective um, and from, you know, where the host that that data lives in um, and someone hacking into that, that infrastructure. Right. If a, if a server is done right, then the data should be encrypted at rest and it's not really worth anything anyway to steal that. It's, you know, it's, it's one of those things that makes a lot of sense in movies, but doesn't really make sense in real life. Um, but you know, it's funny right. that you bring up that switch data center. It's that they're even their marketing on their website. They they have all these patents pending on things that we were doing ten years ago. <laughs> it's like where they they say they have patents pending. We're like how can you you can't patent that? That's that's an industry standard thing to do. I don't you know they they I don't mean to like laugh at them because I think they have a lot of good things going for them. But just the marketing around it is is sort of silly. Yeah, we'll, we'll leave it at that because yeah. I don't. I, don't <laughs> I could probably go on for hours on yeah. that topic alone. Um, um, but you know, to your point, there are some data centers that I've walked into, and you've got you know Flow working behind a desk, and you know nothing nothing between Flow and the customer uh, when the customer walks in, and you know they're keeping everything through just like a, a written ledger 
it's like you're just walking into any other commercial office building. Yeah. Um, you know, those, those locations are clearly uh, behind the times, right? They, they haven't even brought that component of it up to standard uh, in the industry. And it makes you just instantly question if they haven't done it for that simple component and invested in that, what have they also not invested in to bring the data center up to par and up to standard? Yeah. <laughs> the only other, uh, you know, example of somebody coming into a data center to take a server out, it was the FBI. I, I knew somebody who was at the the data center that Hillary Clinton's email was stored at. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was <laughs> the FBI came in and stole and took the server. And that that is probably the much more likely example of somebody coming in to take a server out of the room. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. And I experienced that as well when I was working out of the 200 Paul data center in San Francisco. Um, we had a customer who turns out was a notorious spamming uh, company. Uh, and so the yeah, basically came in and, and confiscated their infrastructure. And it was a lot, it was a lot, a lot of infrastructure. So uh, it's another question, since you deal with uh, on basically all sides of the equation in many ways. You, you deal with the providers and the uh, equity people and also the enterprise customers. <laughs> it seems like working with the equity people is actually a very different piece of the puzzle. You, you have to uh, be very forthright in your due diligence, I would think. Um, so it seems like a very complicated part. So, how do you how do you work with the equity people? How how is it that you can uh, guide them into to where to where to put their money and and where to uh, invest? And I, I don't know if you want to give any investment tips, but if you have anything that you would be willing to share, that'd be interesting too. We, you have to know the motivations of who you're working with, right? And we very we're very transparent very early on in the process working with any of these firms that our job is not to support a thesis that they have about um, you know, looking to put money into a certain company uh, or looking to acquire a certain business or property or whatever it might be. Our job is simply to give you the facts that as we see them and as we know them. How you interpret those facts and how you position them into your narrative is up to you. So we don't ever want our research and our data uh, to be swayed by a transaction needing to occur. And I'll give you an example here. So many financial uh, brokers and just financial firms get paid a percentage of a transaction that occurs, right? So if they raise $500 million for a acquisition of a company, they're going to make, they take a couple points of that $500 million to compensate themselves uh, for that transaction, right? So they're heavily weighted towards getting that transaction done, whether it may make sense or might not make sense, right? Right. Um, so knowing know what those incentives are are absolutely essential. Um, and so for us, we need to be very wary of that. We are very wary of that. Um, and we've even gotten into arguments. You know, I've been in arguments with analysts who get pissed off at me because I'm giving them, you know, my experience, which conflicts with uh, the stories that they hear from investor calls. Um, and they're like, well, the, you know, the CFO of XYZ company 
said this and you know, you're, you're wrong. And I'm like, well, the CFO of XYZ company is telling you, Mr. Analyst, this because he wants you to interpret the data in a very specific way to ensure that their stock price isn't impacted. Right. So why are you getting mad at me for just giving you hard reality of how the marketplace is, is operating? Um, so it just is what it is. You know, you getting pissed off at me doesn't change reality, right? Um, and and the incentives and the motivations of who's giving you the data, right? And that's that's what I think is just very important in that space is what are the motivations of the, of the actors at the table. Um, and to my point, you know, it's not our job to ensure a transaction occurs. It's our job simply to put the facts on the table, um, and then the firm can interpret that data however they, they want to. It's something that I have somewhat been in, uh, involved in, but it's very easy to misinterpret that data. You can look at the continual annualized growth of the data center industry, and it looks great, but you really have to look down to segments and what type of uh, segment is growing. You know, that there was a huge growth in Edge, um, like with uh, Edge Connects and some of those companies. And there's been a huge growth in hyperscale, but some of those smaller companies have been struggling. So I, it sounds like you have your finger on the pulse with a lot of that. What do you see the sort of next phase of growth or, or market segmentation? I, I hear some things about fog, which is, I, I think, a really stupid name, but getting servers as close to customers as possible, perhaps putting them at cell tower locations, although I've heard that that is not the best location, but uh, also, you know, hyper hyperscale, you know, do you see the market segmentation going in a specific direction? I think it's going in every direction. Right <laughs> um, and the, I'm going to give a shout out to one of our key partners in structure research out of Toronto and Philbert Chi, um, who runs that firm and Jabez, uh, who, who works at that firm. And they've got a, a team of people who are just constantly in this marketplace pulling down that data. Uh, and so the, the, the two of our firms, both Open Spectrum and, and Structure Research, when we come together on projects, I really don't, you know, I think we blow the competition out of the water from Gartner, 451, Ernst & Young, Accenture, a lot of these firms that are, are analysts um, who don't have on staff people who are in the marketplace doing the transactions. And so they have to call on people like us to, to pull that data. But the the market is growing in every direction. The one that it's not growing is on-prem owned data centers, right? That is shrinking across the board, right? So uh, an SME or even a large enterprise having that data center in their office, uh, that market is shrinking. And that goes back to like, what is a data center, right? There's roughly around a thousand, you know, production commercial co-location facilities um, but there's roughly millions <laughs> of on-prem uh, commercial data centers, right? Oh, not commercial, uh, on-prem uh, on enterprise data centers. Right. And so those millions of data centers, literally year over year, we've seen that number shrinking by between 10 and 20%. And all of that data has to go somewhere, right? And they say, oh, well, it's going to the cloud. And isn't that going to impact the data center industry? But who the hell do you think is delivering the cloud? So right. <laughs> you know, Amazon and Microsoft buy from Equinix and Digital and QTS and CoreSight right. and 
all the other major players, right? They're buying service power and space and services from all those companies. So I see the edge is growing for obvious reasons. You know, as we have more and more of our population consuming content, uh, not just consuming content, but creating content uh, that live on the edge, they need access to that data. You know, Amazon is building micro uh, data centers all over the world right now, not just in the major metros, as is Microsoft, as, as are the major content providers. So they're pushing their content closer and closer to the eyeballs that want to consume that content. And they're doing it for a variety of reasons, in part because it's cheaper to have that data live closer to the eyeball, because then it doesn't have to pass through the network all the way back to one of the major internet exchanges. Um, if it's sitting real close to that end user, they don't have to pay the fee to have that, you know, that data transfer um, from a central hub all the way back to that end user that may be out in a rural community. So it makes sense as to why more and more of these data centers are being built in, in different markets, but the scale is different, right? So Ashburn, Virginia and Chicago and New York are always going to be mega, mega scale, whereas a place like Raleigh, North Carolina, where I am now, is never going to be a fraction of that because we don't have anywhere near the eyeballs right? Um, in those markets. Uh, nor do we have the internet exchanges and the traffic that's clearing through uh, those markets. But I do understand that um, it, it has grown, right? The, that area ha- has uh, gotten a few more facilities in it, hasn't it? Drastically, yeah. I mean, yeah. All, all of them are. Yeah. There's no, there's no market that I know of that's shrinking in terms of the number of data centers. Commercial production, you know, purpose-built collocation and, and just purpose-built enterprise, large enterprise, hyperscale right. data centers are growing everywhere. So do you feel like there will be a glut? I mean, it, there has been a lot of building done. In some ways, supply can uh, push demand because there, there's so much more that you can put and there's so much uh, cheaper uh, data center space because of the, the competition. But do you feel as though there might be too much and that the there will be a stall at some point? No, we, we literally can't build data centers fast enough. <laughs> and that's just that's fact. I mean, it's, if you look at the, the occupancy rates for all the major publicly traded data center companies right now, they are all at or above uh, or near 90%. Yeah. 90%. That's insane, right? So, you know, would it be smart for a company to build a 10 megawatt, you know, mega data center in a tier two market um, without any anchor tenants? No, it would not. Nor, you know, in the marketplace today, you don't even need to do that. You might have the space to deliver 10 megawatts, but you can build out in a modular fashion such that you're only deploying the infrastructure that a customer or the first couple of customers may need. And then as demand grows, you can modularly add more crack units and UPSs and generators and whatnot to support that demand as it grows over time. But I, there's, you know, there's no way, shape and form that we have a oversupply issue. You know, we have some providers in the marketplace that I think don't know what they're doing and are yeah. doing a really crappy job yeah. at running their companies. Um, and they're struggling as a result, but that doesn't mean that um, we have an oversupply. In fact, I'm seeing even crappy companies that have, you know, executive teams that just don't get it and sales teams that just don't get it still do okay because there's so many stupid buyers in the market. I don't want to say <laughs> stupid buyers. There's so many uneducated buyers in the market. Right. They're buying from uneducated sellers, right? So the marketplace is doing really, really well 
despite the fact that we have so many un- uneducated buyers and sellers in the market. Well, obviously you're you're in a good position for that because it really data or co-location specifically is not an apples to apples comparison, and I've definitely toured colo facilities and and done assessments on colo facilities that say they're tier three and are not even close to tier three. Right. That, that you know I, I don't <laughs> I don't think there's a standard on that for marketing purposes. You can't say that your uptime institute rated tier three, but you can just put tier three on your on your marketing materials, I guess, and and claim that you are. Yeah. Which yeah, that's is, what they do. Yeah, it's a real shame. I mean, you know, I, yeah. I almost feel like for a lot of people, the definition of tier three is having two UPSs, and that's it. Uh, <laughs> right. But um, but actually, looking at at electrical single lines, and uh, actually, you know, we've we've done a lot of due diligence that way to really drill down into the the meat and potatoes of the facility, and it's tough because you know uptime is very expensive to do one of those assessments and actually give a tier rating to a provider. So most of them don't have it. So, you know, you not only have to kick the tires and tour the facility, but if you can get any drawings or, or any other access, it's, it's very vitally important. And I, I, you know, the more people are moving into Colo, the more that they have to be savvy or have someone like you who's savvy on their side. So I'm, I'm glad that you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. And it's, it all goes back to education, man, and that's why we've been so focused on education for so long, because we, we truly believe that if we have more educated buyers and sellers, that it's going to raise the tide and raise all ships. And that also ties into a lot of the work that we do, working with state and uh, local and national government in education as well. So our involvement on that level, educating senators and congressmen and state congressmen or state representatives and whatnot. We feel that if we can educate people and just get them more aware of how the stuff actually works, um, that they'll make smarter decisions. And hopefully through that, we can weed out uh, those in the industry who are benefiting from the fact that, you know, people just don't have that, that level of education. And, and your podcast, I Love Data Centers, which I really should have mentioned earlier. I'll mention it in your intro. <laughs> but uh, it's a fantastic podcast. I, I really do appreciate it. It's uh, some some very heavy hitters in the data center industry have uh, been talking to you for, uh, I guess, about a year and a half. Is that how long it's been going? Yeah, it's a little over a year and a half. Yeah. And unfortunately, it kind of ebbs and flows. I try <laughs> to push out about two a month. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I'm, I'm capable to do that. Sometimes I'm not, you know, for... It's a blessing and a curse that I'm, I'm platinum now with Delta and, and Hilton. Right. Um, I've just been traveling so much that it's prevented me from being able to take the time to do the interviews that I want to do. So I've got a backlog of like 10 people that I need to interview and I just haven't had the time to do it yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's tough to just to get everybody to be ready at the same time, even though it's it's not, you know, it takes about an hour of everybody's time. A lot of people, for whatever reason, can't really... Uh, can't get on that hour when they want them to. Um, but I, I just yeah. want to say, you know, I, I, I think that it's a, a very good way to digest the information because it's conversational and interesting. And one of the things that you've done is actually, you know, you, you talk to the people and you learn their stories and, and sort of what's behind how they got to where they are in the industry. And I think you do a really good job at it. And, and just thinking back, I didn't do that with you. <laughs> we really dove right into it. Um, but I want to say that you had, uh, an episode of your podcast that I want to steer people to, which, uh, I think it was episode, I'm looking at it, 26, which was, um, 
Rich Rich Miller interviewed you. And so if anybody wants to get more <laughs> backstory on uh, Sean Patrick Terrio, go listen to that interview because it's very good. Yeah, I, I we didn't really get into any of how you got into the industry or, or anything like that, but uh, I think you have an interesting entrepreneurial past. So <laughs> I uh, I appreciated hearing that. But, um, I appreciate all that. So I I have always been interested in efficient use. So so that's one of the reasons I wanted to get into the podcast and and why uh, the education portion speaks so much is that um, there's so much um out there and and one of the things about the uh industry playbook that you have is making sure that people are using their co-location space as best as possible making sure that people are putting their workloads where they need to be is very crucial right now um so do you <laughs> i guess we're almost done but i really wanted to get into this do you have any tools you, you were saying they're industry tools but do you have any specific tools that you use to help people to cost model and compare where their workloads need to be we don't have any homegrown tools there are a variety of firms that we played with over the years such as uh right scale a firm called turbonomics um, and now the service providers themselves, such as Rackspace and CenturyLink and QTS and TierPoint and whatnot, have internal tools that are helping customers to right-size their own environments. And when I say right-size your environment, what I mean is make sure that the virtual server that your applications are living on are configured to, um, to, to optimally support that application. So they're not too big, they're not too small. <laughs> You know, they're, they're just right. And by doing that, they're drastically reducing the cost of companies. So, if you, you know, in any pure infrastructure as a service environment, you can go in and click to provision a server. So, if you're provisioning servers without doing the diligence of understanding what size of, should this server be, um, then you probably are going to provision a server that's not going to be optimally sized for the application that's sitting on that server. And so it's gonna take, it takes time to monitor and watch the workloads, um, but then you can have hard data that comes back to you that says, okay, you know, you're currently spending, you know, $40,000 a month on AWS for your existing environment. You have, uh, and we've been monitoring your environment now for two, three weeks, and it looks like 20% of the servers, the virtual servers that you've spun up are simply sitting idle, not even being used. So, you know, suggestion, turn those off. Um, and then for the other, you know, 60% of your servers, they simply weren't provisioned to be the optimal size for the workloads that you have on the servers. So here's the suggestions that we have to change from a, you know, Excel, whatever, down to a regular virtual uh, VM instance. And so by doing those simple things, customers are seeing drastic reductions in their costs. And we um, help facilitate those conversations and just encourage customers to leverage the tools that are out there. Um, so we don't want to be baking our own tools and become a software company. We just want to be an intelligence firm that helps people make the smart decisions by pointing them at the right resources that, that are already out there and available. It's very important. And, um, it, you know, it's it's actually one of the things we see is, is that the costs come from a number of different places. It's the 
servers themselves not using the server capacity as much. It's bending on warranties for servers that are 10 years old and suddenly you have to pay for a warranty for it. it there's, there's so many different pieces of the puzzle that cost money. And a lot of people just, especially in enterprise, but in co-location too, they put something in and let it run for years and years. And that's a problem for a number of ways. One is that the compute is less efficient. So because of Moore's law, every 18 months, not just the amount that you can put on a die, but also the amount of actual computation you get out of each watt improves. And it's a real shame that <laughs> um, companies aren't continuously optimizing for that and uh, putting yep. their workloads where they need to be. So yeah, it's uh it's important stuff. And and there's a lot of education that needs to happen around it. Yeah. And there's and to your point, there's just so many levels, right? Because even looking at your contracts, as you mentioned, are absolutely essential. Um, you know, looking at your licensing fees that you have uh, is absolutely essential. And it, it could go both ways, right? By doing an audit of your licensing fees, you may realize that you're not paying for, you know, 100 licenses that you've been using. Uh, but you may also find that you're paying for a whole bunch of licenses that you uh, haven't been using and don't plan on using. Um, so do, doing those types of audits, which is kind of, you know, we, we follow a process that we call ROI 360. You know, we productize our process. We want to review and audit your, everything going on in that company to include the people, uh, the documents that you've signed, your workloads, uh, map that to business outcomes. Uh, we want to help you optimize that environment. That's the O and the ROI. And then from there, we can make some recommendations and then we help implement, right? But the, that key piece is let's do the audit first. Let's figure out what the hell it is that you have and figure out if that's how we can best go about realigning or transforming uh, the existing environment to one that uh, is going to be the best suited for your business. And I, I've never, not once since we've done this process, uh, since I've done this process, have I ever seen a company that's just like totally got everything dialed. Every company needs help somewhere in some capacity. Yeah, I I would definitely agree with that. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I think that in, in many ways, if I can go back to the Silicon Valley example, it's not like we're we're making the world a better place, but at least by letting people use their stuff more efficiently, we're at least helping the companies and hopefully uh, helping their bottom line. And by doing that, using a little bit of electricity and, and it's not necessarily making the world a better place, but we're doing a little bit. So um, yeah, that's that's uh, one of my favorite pieces of the industry. And uh, I'm really, I'm glad that you're you're taking such an active role in it. So I, I think I should probably let you go because we've been talking for a good amount of time. Where can people find you online, social, uh, wherever you can be found? Uh, I can be found in multiple different places. Uh, so one of, one of the other pieces that we didn't mention is I have a, I'm the, also the VP for the data center and cloud and hosting and security division within Microcorp, which is a large master uh, telecommunications distributor out of Atlanta. Um, so we, we brought in all of our capabilities under their roof and are helping their 2000 some odd uh, agents and, and sub agents, which are consultants, tel primarily telecom consultants, but some bars and uh, TEM, TEM companies primarily in the Southeast, but we're spanning off, expanding all over the country. Um, so you can find me through Microcorp, and that's microcorp.com. Learn more about what they do. You can find us through openspectruminc.com for a lot of the analyst work that we do and the outsourced CIO, CTO, audit work that we do with companies. You can find me on LinkedIn. 
uh, just look up Sean Patrick Terrio. You can find the book on Amazon. If you just look up data center co-location industry playbook, uh, and you can find all those materials on our website as well. So we've got training materials, we've got some videos, uh, we've got a lot of teaser content on the website for those who want to check it out. It's all through OpenSpectrumInc.com. And for those who are partnered with MicroCorp, they get access to almost all of this content for free. And so that's just something else that I want to throw out there. Yeah, that's all. That's most all of the online and, and social stuff that I've I've got available. Do you have any appearances or uh, trainings that are coming up that people could sign up for? Yeah, definitely. Great question. I appreciate you asking. So if you go to the MicroCorp website uh, and you go to events and you look at the uh, ultimate partner training events, uh, you'll see what we have lined up for 2019. But we've got a, uh, an ultimate partner training, which is a broad training event that speaks to UCAS, the Unified Communications as a Service, Security, Data Center, Hosting. I think we're going to talk a bit about IoT. That's going to be in January in Atlanta. We've got a data center and interconnection boot camp in February. Uh, we have a security boot camp in March. And then we're going to have another hosting and cloud boot camp in April. And then beyond that, I don't recall off the top of my head <laughs> what we have coming up. Yeah, I understand. You're, you're pretty busy. So uh, I, I appreciate you giving me the time. It was really Great talking to you. I think we covered a lot of stuff, but uh, it's very important stuff. So I appreciate you giving this much time. Well, Drew, I love I love that you love data centers too, man. So I'm sure yeah. we'll probably get to hear and come to 20 yeah. hours on the topic. But. Yeah. Um, yeah, everybody should uh, listen to the I Love Data Center podcast. Um, I, I won't do the screaming. I love data centers because that's your bit, but <laughs> I do I do like that you make everybody scream, I love data centers. So we'll hopefully talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you, man. Peace. Have a good one. That's our show. I'd like to thank our guest, Sean Patrick Terrio, for joining us. Again, he's on LinkedIn, and you can go to openspectruminc.com to get links to the podcast and his books. Next week, we'll mark the start of our green series, so please come back for that. For good data, I'm Drew Farnsworth. We'll catch you next time on the podcast.